we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we're in the section, the grace section of the Heidelberg Catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude. Introduction is the first two questions. Questions 3 through 11 is the guilt section. Questions 12 through 85, grace. Questions 86 through 129, gratitude. Grace section exposits the Apostles' Creed, and then it goes through justification, sacraments, and uh, a little bit on church discipline. And then the gratitude section goes through the Ten Commandments and Lord's Prayer. So we're in the grace section on the Apostles' Creed, and specifically on that one line of the Apostles' Creed that might sometimes cause us to raise an eyebrow uh, and say, what meanest thou? Um, He descended into hell. Now, we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago, and um, I asked if you'd like me to spend more time on it, and my memory seems to suggest that the consensus was yes, that you wanted to spend time on this, and so I'm happy to do that, and then we'll, um, we'll continue on after uh, today. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they all have descended into hell. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's good. That's interesting that you met a Catholic that didn't know the Apostles' Creed. Sure. See, and that's really common. I mean, the tr- truth is most of us know. Um, most people who will identify as Roman Catholic are in that nominal category um, where they don't go to Mass every week. And, you know, you do have some people who do that. Um, but the majority, I think, is probably not so much. And, uh, and it was that way also in the 16th century where many people didn't even know the creed. And ministers, uh, priests, uh, couldn't tell you why you confess the creed. And that's one of the reasons why the, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism uh, exposits the creed. Remember, catechisms are a Protestant thing. We, we are the ones that invented catechisms, and the uh, Roman Catholics responded. There's lots of things that Protestants invented. Uh, another thing, the collar. You ever seen a collar on a guy? It looks like uh, a dog collar, right? Like that. This is his neck. This is his face. Yeah. Uh, this little thing right here, Okay, or you've seen it where it's just a big white thing, and you immediately think priest, right? That's Protestant. The Catholics copied it. You can do the research on the history. It was the Scottish Presbyterians that invented it. And the, yeah, he might have been, huh? This, the octopus. Um, Scary-looking priest. Uh, but anyway, the, th- the point is, is that there's lots of things that... Then the caller was just to symbolize that this is a uh, clergyman and he is set apart for the ministry of the word. And there is a benefit to it in the sense that um, you're not undercover. I mean, if I walk out on the street, what do people think I am? Yeah, lawyer. If I go to, if I go to, if I go to the hospital on a hospital visit and I look like this, which I always do, Maybe no tie. What do I look like? Everybody thinks I'm a doctor. If I'm on a plane and I'm dressed like this or no tie, nothing. If I have a collar, people immediately recognize that as 
some sort of Christian minister or priest or what have you. Um, it's just that what's happened is, is that uh, uh, with Protestantism, there's been a lot of overreaction that has sometimes made us a little allergic to things that once were Protestant. Catechism is another one. And uh, I, I, oftentimes when people come in, they go, catechism? Why do you guys do catechism or infant baptism? Lots of things. And what we have to do is be retrained on certain things and, um, and not throw out the baby with the bath water or with the baptism water. So, all right, so we're going to talk about he descended into hell. Uh, Apostles' Creed, big one. Uh, we don't just go around changing everything, um, and the Reformers didn't. So, I, I, last week, or two weeks ago, I mentioned these, um, these quotes by uh, a couple of prosperity gospel preachers, uh, because th- th- there's different ideas about what this means, that Christ descended into hell. What are we talking about? Are we saying that after Christ's death, when he said, it is finished, body and soul separate, body goes into the tomb on a Friday, stays there till Sunday, where did Christ's soul go? Did it go to heaven? Jesus did say, into your hands I commit my spirit. My spirit quoting the Psalms, or did he go into hell? So we want to, we want to think about this today. And uh, what biblical reason would there be for um, understanding uh, Christ's descent into hell? And so we're going to look at a passage today, just to make it fun, because there's one passage in particular. Actually, there's only two passages. Um, I'll spend less than 60 seconds on one, and then the rest of the time on the other. Um, If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, this is 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's a little creed he gives there. This is how we are bound together. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore it says, and now he quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And there's this little parenthetical statement in verse 9. In saying he ascended, talking about Christ's ascension, what does it mean that he, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then upon his ascension, he gave the gifts of the ministry of the word, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, the work of ministry, etc., etc. Some people have taken that line where it says he descended to the lower parts, that is the earth, to mean, oh, he descended into hell. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that the one who's ascended into heaven was also, he had first come into the world. And upon his ascension, which is the point of that passage, he has given his gifts. Uh, it's, you have to do real violence to the text to make it sound, to make it mean that he went into hell. The more difficult passage, which is the one we'll ta- tackle today, is in 1 Peter. If you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, and this is probably the toughest passage in the entire New Testament to interpret. 
Um, I preached a sermon on it, so if you're not satisfied with my um, teaching or explanation today, which is, you know, possible, um, encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. I preached it on uh, December 14th in 2014 in the evening ser- service when we were going through First Peter. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, beautiful statement, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went, and here's where it gets weird, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt, but from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Clear as day, right? Simple. Probably the toughest passage in the New Testament, right there. Uh, Martin Luther said, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So um, when Luther says things like that, you have to approach a text with uh, a a lot of humility and a lot of sobriety and also be careful of whose study notes you're reading. Um, It's baffled scholars and commentators for centuries. Who are these spirits in prison? Uh, you know, not all parts of Scripture are equally clear. And we have to accept that. There's certain parts that are more clear, certain parts that are less clear. We allow the more clear passages to help us understand the less clear passages. And, uh, and it's okay to say, I'm not sure what that text means. You know, I think there's this fear that Christians get sometimes that unless I know what everything means, that um, somehow I'm going to mislead some. Well, I don't know what that means, but I know what this means over here. And you stick with that. Uh, some of what Peter says here is indeed obscure and difficult to interpret. And yes, we have to remember it's not meant to mystify us or confuse us. The, the, the original recipients clearly understood what he was talking about. Um, just like in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul talks about those who are baptized for the dead. Another difficult passage. There's something like 200 interpretations on that. Different interpretations. Um, it's okay to say, I'm not sure. Here are some of the different views. And you know, hopefully you have a pastor that can explain a few different views and, and think about it. Okay, here's where the passage gets confusing. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. When did this happen? Where exactly did this happen? And who exactly are these spirits in prison? Now, each of those questions has a variety of answers by biblical scholars. And again, when you find a variety of answers on, a, on a, a particular text amongst scholars, all of whom affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, they affirm the creeds, confessions, again, you have to approach it with a lot of humility and say, I'm not 100% certain, but let's, let's listen to the different ideas and arguments. A lot of discussion has been provoked by that line in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. I mentioned before that line was not in the earliest manuscripts of the Creed, nor is it in the Nicene Creed, which dates from, anybody remember? 325, very good, very good. 325 is when the Nicene Creed uh, is dated. Um, 
most arguments for the Apostles' Creed show that it's, it predates the Nicene Creed, the earliest forms of the, of the Apostles' Creed, but those earliest forms did not include this line. Uh, he descended into hell. But the thing is, is that it, the Apostles' Creed, as we say it, was used in Christianity for centuries, from about the 4th century. And uh, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, it's got a pedigree of over 1,000 years. And here's where we have to, have to just step back for a second and not try to read our own American individualism and maybe even revolutionary spirit back into uh, the decisions that they made at that time. We have to respect them for where they were at in history and time. And they were wise not to remove that from the creed. If they had removed this line from the creed and said, Whoosh, we don't need that line. Uh, we're changing the Apostles' Creed. They would immediately have been written off as a sect. And they're trying to reform the church. They're not interested in a revolution. They're not interested in starting over. They are interested in trying to reform the church. And they will, they will bend over backwards to hang on to anything they can that the church has used and has a, has a rich and deep pedigree using um, if they can explain what they mean by it. And that's what they sought to do with this line. Now, um, you know, it's still used to this day and because of the way that, that we explain it in the Apostles' Creed in question 44, I mean, in the Heidelberg Catechism, in question 44, we really shouldn't have any problem with it if we're saying this is what we mean. The difficulty is the location of where that line comes. Uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So it goes chronological, right? Cruci uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, yep. born of the Virgin Mary, nine months later. Okay, grew up. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, yep. Uh, was crucified, yep. Dead, yep. Buried, right. His soul went to heaven, his body went into the tomb. Well, we, we don't confess that. We say he descended into hell. That's the, the, the way the, con the creed has always been. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven. Our problem is not with the fact that Christ suffered hell, but where the chronological line is, or the chronology of the creed. Everybody with me? Okay, that was reaffirming. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, and so... What, the, what Calvin and the Reformers and uh, Ursinus and those who confess the Heidelberg and what we mean who confess Heidelberg is that Christ, he suffered literal hell, okay? That, not that he went into this place, whatever that is that we call hell, but that he suffered hell because what is hell? So, uh, can you, who can define hell for me? Eternal, okay, well, not necessarily eternal torment. We tend to think of it that way. What is hell? Well, not necessarily because God will be present. He is very much present in hell. He's just present in a way you don't want him to be. Who said it over here? It's God's wrath. Hell is God's just and holy wrath against sin. And now, yeah, it's, we think of it, Angela, you mentioned a place of eternal torment. 
Because the Bible says that that's the, the, um, that's the amount of repayment that is necessary for our sin. But what did Christ suffer on the cross? He suffered the wrath of God, the equivalence of an eternity in hell. He's not still suffering, so we don't want to say that, hell, you know, that, that God's, um, when we're talking about the, the, the substance of what hell is, we're talking about the judgment and the wrath of God. That means what Christ suffered on the cross was far more than just a Roman crucifixion. He suffered the absence of God's love, but the presence of God's wrath and judgment. He withdrew his favor so that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's present in his holy anger against sin. And that's what hell is. And that's also why we believe in this doctrine you know, that we sometimes call limited atonement, only in the sense that Look, cry, your, your, the payment for your sin can only be in one of two places, either on the cross or in eternity in hell. But it can't be in both, because if it's in both, then God received, receives double payment. If Jesus already paid for the sins of somebody who goes to hell, then God is unjust. You see, that's why we have to be careful by saying, oh, Jesus died for you. Um, well, you know, you have to be careful what you mean by that. We say, you know, Christ died for sinners. And, uh, and, and he suffered the hell. When he said it is finished, it means that, the, that his, uh, his suffering for the elect is complete. Now, we don't know who the elect are, and that's why we share the gospel. Um, we don't just pray that God will bring the elect to faith. We need to be part of that process. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a, no, it is not improper. That's a very good question. Because, but the thing is, is that it's not either or. It, it's both and. Yeah, is it, would it be improper to uh, define hell as a location rather than just a synonym for God's wrath? Um, no, because the Bible speaks of it as this location. But again, what does that mean? Our ideas sometimes of hell, I mean, what comes into your mind when you think of hell? Yeah, Dante's Inferno, right. Caverns, fire, yeah, and a guy with a uh, yeah, pitchfork in charge of it all. Okay, Satan's not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell. And, and the lake of fire is just a metaphor. We, again, we don't want to read metaphors uh, too literally. Because hell is also called in some places outer darkness. So how do you have, a, how do you have a, an eternal fire and outer darkness at the same time? Fires give light. So they're all metaphors. The, the, the thing that is not a metaphor is God's wrath. <laughs> that is, there's nothing metaphorical about that. And yes, there is a place. But we don't want to get too far off track here. Let's, uh, let's keep moving. But that's an excellent question. Uh, okay, so he suffers... Hell in our place as our substitute, which is why if you confess Jesus Christ, you look to Christ, you say, I got nothing else, you don't need to fear hell. It's not your home. Heaven is your home because Christ already suffered it for you. Okay? That's what question 44 is getting at. Beautiful question. And that's why I actually like that line, he descended into hell. It reminds me in my times of temptation, in my times of doubt, 
that Jesus already suffered hell for me. The question is, when did he do that? That's what we want to get at. Well, we're just going to have to, we're just going to, have to we're going to keep moving, otherwise we will not make it in 20 minutes. And so I'll, I'll give you time to uh, ask questions, and, uh, but it's my time to talk. <laughs> so, all right. What, what makes the creed? No, but I'll, I'll give you guys questions, or time for questions. I just want to get through these four views real quick. So just give me a uh, what, what makes the, the creed somewhat confusing, again, is the place where that line comes. And uh, uh, moreover, he said in his dying breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So what's going on here? Um, okay, there's been a variety of views. There's basically four views. One, two, three, four. Let me just get through this and I'll give you time for questions. View number one. Well, what Peter's talking about here, that he went and preached to the spirits in prison, is that he preached the gospel to the departed souls of unbelievers. So you have all these people who were not believers until the time of Christ in AD 33 when he dies. And... uh, Jesus goes and he preaches the gospel to these people who are suffering in torment, kind of giving them an opportunity. Somewhere around the year 300, Clement of Alexandria argued the idea of Jesus going to hell, that place, to preach the gospel to sinners held captive so that they might repent and believe. In other words, they were given a second chance after death. Now, Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century, He objects to that idea on the basis of the New Testament teaching that it is appointed once for man to die, and after that comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. But that's that's view one. We'll call it the Clement view. Jesus went and preached to unbelievers in hell, giving them a second opportunity. View number two. Jesus preached victory to the departed souls of believers. So in the late 16th century, the uh, Roman Catholic uh, theologian and apologist, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, a a brilliant, brilliant thinker, probably the most powerful uh, Roman Catholic apologist ever. Uh, It was very difficult to refute many of his arguments. Um, Uh, he went on to argue that Jesus went not to hell, but to a place called limbo. Not that thing with the bar that you go under, but limbo, the limbus patrum, a place that the Roman Catholic Church teaches is just on the outskirts of hell. And some of this gets back to Dante's Inferno again, where you have these ideas of hell that uh, emerged in the uh, Middle Ages that... um, have kind of informed the way we think about hell. Uh, the idea is that the Old Testament saints, if you died a believer in the promise of the Messiah, any time from Genesis 3.15 until uh, the, uh, Christ's death and resurrection, you went to limbo, the limbus patrum, uh, on the outskirts of hell, and you stayed there until Christ came and proclaimed his victory. So he goes down into that place, and he says, I've done it, and he leads them all out. That's view two. View three is that Jesus proclaimed victory over fallen angels 
who had been incarcerated since the days of Noah. Now, this view is a little strange. Um, there's that passage in Genesis chapter 6. My, my 11-year-old son is fascinated with this passage. Uh, it talks about the Nephilim. Okay? We're gonna, we don't want to get too off track here, but uh, th- it's hard to understand what the passage is talking about. It says there were giants in those days. Is that a metaphor for uh, powerful kings who are wicked men? Um, they're called the Nephilim. And nobody really knows for certain. If you read somebody who says, I'm certain about this, you know who often says, I'm certain about this, about everything? John MacArthur. He's certain about everything. Um, I saw a funny meme of him looking over the blankets like this and said, John MacArthur um, realizes there's something he's not certain about. And uh, he's a brother in the Lord. He's a brother in the Lord, but there's sometimes where it's not helpful to be absolutely certain about, about everything, things that you can't be certain about. And uh, he actually takes this view that there were these Nephilim, and some people say that they were demons who had sexual relations with human women and gave birth to these Nephilim, these offspring who were physical giants. And so this is why you can see my son is just so fascinated with this. Did these people live? Were they real? You know, did, were there giants walking around? And, um, and so these were uh, wicked, wicked demon people that lived in the world. This is the view of the Nephilim. And then there's this view that when Jesus went into hell, this is what MacArthur says, Jesus proclaimed victory over those Nephilim wicked spirits that had been incarcerated since the days of Noah and the flood. Um, I know, it's, it's a little weird. Um, that's view three. View four is that Jesus, by the Spirit, preached to living people during the days of Noah. Because Noah's mentioned in this passage. So are these demons that were, demon people that were drowned in the flood and they went into this special part of hell, and Jesus came and proclaimed victory over them? Or is it rather that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, preached to sinners during the days of Noah? Because verse 20 says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In the Spirit there is taken to mean in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was by the Holy Spirit that Christ preached through Noah, just as the gospel was preached to other people in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, for example, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Now, this was the view of Augustine and the view of Thomas Aquinas. Now, real briefly, a a great problem with the first three views is that they assume that made alive in the Spirit, in verse 18, means that Jesus' Spirit was made alive. But that's a reference to his resurrection, not his soul going somewhere in verse 18. You see verse 18 there? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What is Peter talking about there? Is he saying spirit apart from body, and it went someplace called hell? Or does he mean made alive in the Spirit, 
as the resurrection, a physical resurrection, because Paul speaks of the resurrection that way in many places. We're made al- your resurrection will take place by the power of the Holy Spirit, your physical resurrection. So spirit doesn't always mean immaterial. I mean, it just depends on how we're using it or how the writers are using it. We need to keep in mind that the grammar in this text does not demand that Jesus' preaching took place after his death, you know, someplace in hell. The ambiguity in this text doesn't require us to come to the conclusion that it must refer to some sort of post-death preaching mission in hell, either to angels, fallen angels, or to people who had died. The point of all of this is to say that we're to follow in Christ's steps and suffer while doing good. That's, Paul, that's Peter's point in chapter 2, actually the whole book. He's saying that to be like Christ in the sense of suffering. Suffering while doing good. You're doing good in, in the world, you're suffering for it, don't fight back. And that includes preaching and witnessing to a hostile world, just as Jesus did and just as Noah did in his day. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him, even though they were hostile to the truth. Well, Peter tells us that we must be ready to do the same. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Noah was a righteous man in the midst of a wicked world. Well, Peter calls us to be the same to even suffer for righteousness' sake. Noah realized that judgment would come upon the world. Well, Peter reminds us that God's judgment is soon to come. Chapter 4, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Noah was, uh, was saved with only a few others, you know, in the ark. And P- Peter encourages us that though we may be small in number in the world, though we may be a minority in the world, we too will still be saved in the end. For Christ has triumphed and has all things subject to him. Even when our numbers are small, God is perfectly able and willing to save his people. Uh, We don't enjoy victory always in this world in the way the world sees victory, you know, politically or economically or materially or whatever. Um, but God will save us and rescue us in the end, in, in the resurrection. The pagans of Noah's time did not repent, and it should come as no surprise to us that many do not repent today, and yet we should still preach. The reference to Noah and his family, not least the mention of small numbers, is meant to be a substantial encouragement to small numbers of believers in Christ Jesus who are facing ridicule from unbelievers and even persecution or hostility. After all, we experience grace from the same God who showed grace to Noah. So among those four views, okay, Jesus' spirit went down into hell, preached to unbelievers. Jesus' spirit went down into hell, pronounced victory to believers. Jesus' spirit went down into hell and pronounced victory to demons and the Nephilim. Or or Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, was preaching through Noah in a time of hostility and difficulty for the people of God in the ancient world, I think the fourth view is the most sound theologically, has the most exegetical support. I tend to think that's what Peter means in that view, and that one to me seems to be the most consistent with the Word of God and with all that we confess. And that has been 
by and large, uh, the view that uh, most Reformed have taken. Uh, when we say he descended into hell in our confession, we're not saying that Jesus' spirit went down into hell, as Clement said and as you know, other people, the Pentecostals have said. Um, we're saying that the point of this, the point of this is to say that Christ has suffered hell in my place, that he has suffered hell in my place, and that I need not fear hell. Now you may ask your questions. <laughs> I love Edwina's elbow into your side. So. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, we always say Jesus died for our sins, which is correct according to 1 Corinthians 15. But it's it's, it's almost uh, more illustrative to say God that Christ suffered God's wrath uh, for for His people. Right. You know, and the, the reality, the way I like that is the the fact that Jesus did it. For the whole world to see, he did right. Right. He didn't go somewhere and you know pay for things. Yeah. These things were not done in a corner. No, the apostle said. Yeah, I mean, you're making a really important point there, John, because when the Bible talks about us being saved, that's what it's talking about. It's saying that we're saved because you have to be saved from something. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from hell. That's why we don't need fear death. Death is temporary. Yes, it is sad. Yeah, and it is a little scary. I mean, who's not, who's not a little bit afraid to die? I think everybody's a little afraid to die. Um, but we need not look at death as this great monster that ends everything. Because Christ has had victory over death, and we're not going to go suffer the wrath of God. We're not going to hell. Christ has already blotted all that out. He's already suffered it in our place. Whatever punishment we deserved was already paid for at the cross. So yeah, it's important because, you know, like myself, I grew up hearing Jesus died for your sins. And I'll tell you what, until I was 25, I didn't know what that meant. I did not know what that meant. Jesus died for your sins. Okay, what does that mean? He was over there on a cross. I have sins. I don't get it. Nobody had ever really explained to me that he became the object of God's wrath. That, he, that my sins were laid on him. Every bad thing I've done. So that what he suffered was not just blood and exhaustion and dehydration, which is how the world looks at it, but that he was the object of God's wrath, that he suffered hell. Hell is an important word. That's why I wanted to spend time to talk about it's not just a place, because again, we have those ideas from Dante's Inferno, all of which are not bad. There's, but Dante's Inferno is poetry. It's poetry. We've got to read poetry as poetry. It's not a, a, a systematic theology on hell. But the, what the, the real kicker about hell is that it's God's wrath. He's present in his judgment, and that's what we've been saved from. So, other questions, either on the text or on the creed? Yeah, Yolanda. I got such a, I'm going to say, peaceful feeling because I don't know where hell is, okay? 
But God talks about that. Jesus talks about hell. You know, he was tempted by the devil. Right. When it's on the, on the catechism, it says he descended into hell. What I thought was, even that is conquered. It is How? How? I don't know. I really don't. But I trust my Savior. Right. And if he says he did it, he did it. Right. That's uh, excellent. Those, those words, the three words in English, it's one word in Greek, is what comforts us, right? It is finished. Yeah, in John chapter 19. What is finished? The work that the Father gave the Son to do. Yeah, what work was that? Live a perfect life and then go to the cross to be the object of God's wrath against the sins of all those he came to save. It is finished. How do I know that I'm one of those whom he has come to save? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He will not reject you. All those who come to me, I, uh, I will not cast out. It's as simple as that. When he said, it is finished, this is what he meant. He didn't mean, well, just the, you know, the, um, the part of my physical suffering, now I've got to go down into hell. The hell that he, that he suffered. I, I think that those first three views, that they, they require a lot more imagination with the text than with the fourth view. Um, and and it's, that's why you know, people like Calvin, who are real sober exegetes, and never went beyond what the text... That's, that's the beauty of Calvin. He doesn't go beyond the text. He, he stops where the text stops. And he concedes this is a very difficult, difficult passage. But uh, the, you know, it, it seems that that's the most plausible and exegetically consistent answer uh, is to say that uh, the, uh, the, the preaching to the prisons and spirits in the days of Noah is talking about the Holy Spirit being used through the preaching of Noah in those days. But when Christ uh, said on the cross it is finished, that it's done. You don't need to fear it anymore. It was a wrap. Phrase in the creed and the location it is, what was their view on what this meant? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not exactly clear. Which makes the whole thing more difficult. If it was, if if it was like, well, there was this assembly and they gathered together with the apostles' creed. You see, as you look at the history of the creed, you see it coming into play more and more. Um, but it's not exactly clear what people meant, and uh, we just know that it was used uh, quite a bit. And the thing with creeds, the the thing with creeds is that they're they're generally in response to some bad teaching out there. I mean, that's how the Nicene Creed was crafted, for example, you know, against uh, Arianism and um, the, the definition of Chalcedon is crafted against uh, um, Nestorianism and Eutychianism and Apollinarianism and all these other isms. And, um, and so when the original formation of the Apostles' Creed is, is coming into play, um, we, di- we just know, we see pieces of it being used in ancient liturgies and uh, then, yeah, by the fourth century, this is what's being said regularly. And uh, same with the same with the Nicene. So, yeah, Chris. What you mean, like the exe- like a um, a semantical range for the word prison? Um, 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, no, I think when he says, because you have to take it in its context of spirits in prison. Uh, Winton proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and then you have this, uh, it's in, we say it's an epexegetical, or it's an apposition, uh, the next statement, kind of explaining that, because they formally did not obey. So the spirits in prison has to do with disobedience to God. Just as Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty to captives and open the prison doors, quoting Isaiah. So. Well, yeah, I see, I think that that would be reading too much into it. Just like you have Isaiah prior to the time of Christ saying, um, the Messiah will come and proclaim liberty to those who are captive. Isaiah chapter 60 to open the prison doors. What prison doors? Well, he's using a metaphor there. And uh, when Jesus is in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and he's reading Isaiah 60, he says, these things are fulfilled in your sight. And today, these are filled. So who are in prison? We're in prison. How? By our sin. We're held captive to the tyranny of the devil. I mean, these are the metaphors that... See, we oftentimes get into trouble when we try to take a metaphor in Scripture and turn it into something physical. This is what the Mormons do. So God has wings when he says, come under the shelter of my wings. Um, what do you do with the, you know, the seven spirits before the seven thrones? Well, you end up with seven literal spirits. So we have to sometimes be careful. And here you have an explanation, an appositional explanation, that they are disobedient to God. So it seems to mean, that, I mean, the Greek is, does not restrict it to a literal or um, location of prison. It's a real prison, but not in the sense of there's jail cells. It's the prison is the prison of sin under the tyranny of Satan. Well, like Dr. Glomster would clear up everything here for us. So. <laughs> I have a secret interpretation now. Okay. <laughs> you have a fifth view. A fifth view. All right. Um, you know, I, I remember looking up on an online Bible course at one point how many mentions of Noah there are in the New Testament. And so I'm wondering, have you ever come across or tried yourself to read 1 Peter 3 along with 2 Peter 3? Um, because 2 Peter 3 is all about whether there will be scoffers in the last days. And ever since the fathers fell asleep um, from the time of Noah, um, you know, the world that then was, all that has been. Yeah, the deluge. Yeah. World has been recreated through through water, and is now one could almost imagine in prison, sort of awaiting yeah. uh, the coming day of judgment, being kept until the day of judgment. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't have any insight either. I'm just wondering. If You're you just trying to make my job more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's good. Uh, I think that they're diff. They're a little different. First Peter is a in terms of their. Um, the, the purpose of the text, um, as you probably know, Second, Second Peter is one of the more difficult books in the New Testament to interpret. But First Peter, it, it, the whole context there is really the two kingdoms, uh, life in a persecuted world, uh, pilgrims. So he draws upon this uh, metaphor, and not just a metaphor, but also history of Noah's day, just as he does drawing upon the history of Israel, uh, in the wilderness, pilgrim people, 
to apply it to us today and how we are to live. Whereas in 2 Peter, he se- the emphasis there seems to be more upon the consummation, uh, certainly in chapter 3, just as the deluge, the deluge, the, the flood, is this time of destruction. There will be another destruction that comes, but it'll be a purging. And just as there was a recreation, in a sense, after the flood, there will be a real recreation in the return of Christ after the, the earth is purged with fire, not with water. And, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, there's probably a lot of nuances and, uh, and parallels there. I don't think that anything from 2 Peter, though, should cause us to believe that there is this prison house under the ground somewhere that holds Nephilim, you know, giant demon people, half people, half demon, or um, that it was the, the holding tank for unbelievers, as Clement believed, or the holding tank of believers until the time of Christ, the Limbus Patrum, and then Jesus led them out. I mean, is it possible that those things are, are there? Well, lots of things are possible. It just seems to me that the fourth view is the most exegetically consistent. Um, if you want to believe in Nephilim, hey, that's between you and God. If you want to believe in unicorns, that's between you and God. Um, I don't think you have exegetical proof for that. And, uh, and if you think Jesus went down into hell um, uh, in between the period of his death and his resurrection, I'd really like to see some of your exegetical evidence for that. I don't see that in Scripture, and neither do the Reformers. And, uh, and you know, a lot of that, what, what drives us, I think a lot of times is speculation. I remember having these, these discussions when I was in seminary, and one guy who was repented of these views thought that they were aliens that came and impregnated the women that created these Nephilim. Okay, well, is that possible? Is it possible there's alien life and that there's other universes and world? Well, I suppose, maybe, I don't know. But is there any exegetical proof of that? No. So the, the more, I think the more sane thing to do is to kind of just stop where the text stops and let Scripture interpret Scripture. But above all, loved ones, above all, getting back to question 44, how are we comforted by this? It's not through speculating what Jesus did, but, but by knowing that upon the cross, he suffered the wrath of God. And as question 44 points out, that's what gives us assurance and comfort in times of crisis and doubt and temptation that Christ has suffered hell for me. All right, we're going to stop there and then um, release the children from the Limbus Patrum over there and uh, declare victory over the time, and then, but I'll stick around for your questions if you like. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and even parts that are difficult to understand and interpret, Lord. We thank you for those parts that are very clear. And help us, we pray, Father, from going into dangerous speculation and from veering off, we pray, off the, off the path that is lit clearly by your word. We thank you for the message of the gospel that is so perspicuous and clear and comforting. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who suffered hell in our place so that we never will have to. Oh Lord, we look forward to our home in heaven. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.